It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hey! We have such a wonderful guest on the show today, Robert Jones Jr., whose debut novel, The Prophets, came out in January of this year. Robert is a prominent voice for the Black, queer, and disabled community, having started his popular blog, Son of Baldwin, back in 2008. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Essence, OK Africa, The Feminist Wire, and The Griot. And we could not have been more excited to talk to him about his stunning debut. Stunning is the word. And, you know, anybody who's been following Robert this whole time as son of Baldwin, you know, knows that passion. <laughs> like, that is the word that I would <laughs> use to describe his writing, his uh, politics, his his just the way he weighs in on life. And I feel like that came through so much in our conversation with him. I think, you know, he is so deeply passionate about what he does and so deeply passionate about us and our histories and our narratives. And, you know, I, I just enjoyed speaking with him so much. I just thought he's so warm. And it's always fun to meet people that you only know from an online identity. And, and you know, you hope that they live up to to that. And I felt like he more than exceeded my hopes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it was definitely an illuminating conversation. I love talking uh, to mm-hmm. Robert. It could have gone on forever. But unfortunately, Absolutely. we only have so much time. So let's not keep <laughs> our amazing conversation with him from our listeners any longer. Robert, welcome to It's Lit. Thank you so much for having me. This is so dope. (laughs) (laughs) We're so excited to have you. We share in the dopeness. It's definitely dope for us as well. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, we're super excited. It it helps that Maisha has that poster of Entezake Shange behind her. (laughs) Um, I am so open right now. You know, oh, it's so funny. Right. Our readers don't know about that, but people keep mentioning it. So now they know that I sit in, I do these interviews in front of a For Color Girls poster. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Our listeners now know that. Uh, exactly. That's what's behind Mystery revealed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so after following you for so long online, it's really cool to have you with us today, Robert. And we have a lot to talk about. But first, we have a ritual here at It's Lit. Since this is a podcast about Black books and writers, we start each episode by asking our guests to name at least one book that, like, blew your mind, made you question, like, what a book could be that was just life-altering, life-changing. What was that book or books for you? That is such a hard question. (laughs) Um, Choose a favorite child. But, but, right, that's exactly what you're asking me. Um, I would have to say that it was Toni Morrison's Beloved. That book was written and structured in a way, in 1987, by the way, she wrote this book, where the language was just so, it was English. Like, I could recognize those words as English, but the way she put them together felt like a different (laughs) language. Um, So, like, Morrisonian. And then on top of that was flowing in and out of like this consciousness. Like, so beloved talked in like this sort of afterlife language. And then Mm. there was these voices that came in at the end that spoke directly to the reader. And she was just doing all of these things. And I was like, oh, you can do this. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can you can actually make a saw. The saw that the mother used to kill her daughter have a voice. Mm. It can be described as something with teeth, like it was alive. Mm. Okay. I'm ready to do something like this then. Right. <laughs> now, Beloved is definitely a book that like blows up the concept of a book. Who was know? it? Who else was it though who described uh, Morrison and Was that Charles Blow who we interviewed? I think so. I think so. <laughs> who also said something similar about Morrison that the language was so specific and <laughs> and I think like said something to the effect of. It's like you're reading another language, but like it's the most beautiful language that you don't know. That you're <laughs> Listen, <laughs> she's she was the goat. Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> so a lot of our listeners may now know you by your debut novel, an instant bestseller, The Prophets. Congratulations. But they might also be yes, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. But they might. Also be familiar with you via your online identity, Son of Baldwin. When we featured you here at The Root a few years back, speaking about James Baldwin, one of your influences in a Black History Month tribute video to the author, now your writing is being compared to Baldwin's, as well as echoing Toni Morrison, who we just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Were you at all surprised by the response to The Prophets, and has that level of praise and comparison been at all overwhelming? Yes, I was utterly surprised by the response to the prophets. I was expecting to be attacked by the hoteps. Mm. Um, I was expecting to be questioned about promoting a so-called quote-unquote gay agenda. I was also worried of the fact that Black people might be tired of the slave subject matter, the, about, about enslaved people. And that I was working against all of those things. So yes, I'm utterly shocked that I have not, for the most part, heard um, much negativity around the prophets, that the reviews have been mostly positive. That was a shock to me because I th- thought what I was doing was really experimental imagination work as well as some really deeply ancestral work that might not have a broad um, appeal that there might be certain segments of the black community, some academics, some root workers who might appreciate what I was doing. But by and large, I thought people would dislike the work. So that mm. was a surprise to me. And then as far as being compared to Toni Morrison and James Baldwin, I understand why people are saying <laughs> that because clearly those two people in particular really influenced the way I write. But I am under no delusion Mm. that I don't touch the hem of either of their garments. One day, maybe, I will hopefully attain something close to what Morrison and Baldwin were able to do with the written word, but I am just a student of both of them and a, a huge admirer and a fan. I am a child of both Baldwin and Morrison. But this is my first book. I, I mm-hmm. can't be I can't be writing like Morrison and and, and Baldwin out <laughs> out the jump. I, I mean, I'm I'm trying to do something like what they did, trying to um, use this art form in a way that's transformative and new and different. But come on, I, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for saying that to everyone who has been comparing this work to Morrison and Baldwin. But I know, in my heart of hearts, this book ain't nowhere near what they do. 
this this ain't this ain't paradise. This ain't go tell it on the mountain. Come on. But I I do appreciate the fact that you see those influences in my work and that you think that it is something that is maybe of import or has some value. I mean, I think you have to give yourself, though, a little bit of credit. I mean, everyone had to write that first book. That's right. (laughs) And and honestly, at this point, we also need to carry on that tradition. So I think that there is there is gratitude to be given for those who are students of Baldwin Mm -hmm. and Morrison who can carry on that literary tradition because everybody can't, right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, well, thank you for that. Um, I, you know, I go back and I, I look at Go Tell It on the Mountain and The Bluest Eye, Morrison and Baldwin's first works. Mm-hmm. And I just think, yo, they were dope off jump. Like from the very beginning, they were writing at a level that is unseen in, you know, debut novels. The, mm-hmm. the Bluest Eye is nearly a perfect book. I, I, it's just, it just blows my mind, their level of artistry, both of them. Well, I mean, we got to also note, though, that Tony was an editor. And so, you know, as mm-hmm. we know, a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times, great readers make great writers. So. And she and she was editor for some dope people. Gail yes, Jones. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Tony K. Bambara. Come on. Mm-hmm, Woo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, in the video that you did for us, you rightly noted that Baldwin had a keen understanding of human behavior. And The Prophets is clearly written in that tradition as you explore the inner lives and motivations of characters, both enslaved and ancestral in your narrative. You also rightly assess that Baldwin's words feel like prophecies, which not only echoes the title of your novel, but is a recurrent theme in The Prophets. How did this book develop for you? Well, um, the first time I had any inkling of writing something that would become the prophets was in my final semester of undergrad in 2006. I was a creative writing major and an Africana studies minor um, because I knew that my real education would be in Africana studies. Everything that they weren't telling me, I would be told in Africana studies. Mm-hmm. And I was reading all of this great work by great authors like the aforementioned Baldwin and Morrison, but also Phyllis Wheatley and Zora Neale Hurston and Wallace Thurman and so on and so forth. And what was becoming clear to me was that as a Black queer person, I wasn't showing up in the cultural narrative until relatively late. So Wallace Thurman is writing in 1929. He wrote a novel called The Black or the Berry. And that is the Mm -hmm. first, at least in terms of what I've read, it's the first time that we see the discussion of someone living at the intersection of blackness and queerness. It wasn't called queerness then, of course. It was probably called sodomite or homosexual or something like that back then. But this is 1929 when he's writing this. And I'm immediately thinking, well, where are we before that? So that's sort of flitting around in my head in my f- final semester. So then I'm in the MFA program and it's my first semester. And Stacy Durasmo, who was my fiction tutorial instructor, gave us this assignment where she said, go out into the world and find objects that a character that you're thinking about for a novel might possess. Mm. And fate being what it is or the ancestors guiding me to where I need to be, you take your choice on which one this, this was. I found a pair of shackles in the garbage on the street in Brooklyn. Mm. 
So there's a pile of garbage in front of a store, black garbage bags and, you know, piled up for sanitation to pick up the next morning. And right at the base are just a pair of shackles just sitting there. And, you know, to this day, I don't know what those shackles were for or who had them previously. But to me, that was the sign. Okay, this character I've been thinking about is in antebellum slavery. And he or she wants me to tell their story. So I started, you know, sketching out who this character was. It turns out that it was a character named Hannibal who eventually became Isaiah. And I'm writing about them and their lives and what it is that sets them apart from everybody else on the plantation. It's their sexuality. And, you know, I'm fighting against this academic idea that queer people couldn't have existed in the distant past because there was no name for it and they couldn't have understood themselves as an identity. And I was like, that is such a heterosexist point of view because no one had to tell me I was gay to know that I liked boys when I was a little three-year-old boy who understood that I had crushes on other boys. I didn't have language. I didn't know what it meant. I just knew intrinsically what it felt like. And so using that as the base for exploring this, I said to myself, oh my goodness, I'm going to write this book because I can't find it in the cultural narrative. And Toni Morrison herself said, if you cannot find the book you wish to read, then you must write it. I was terrified because I was thinking about the opposition, the criticism that would come from me writing, me daring to write a book about this. But I set about doing it in my, my, um, I guess, my first semester of grad school in 2006. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I love that you said that, which is interesting because I actually have a question about that later. But, you know, I think you just answered it in the sense that this idea that what we call queerness has always existed, right? You know, it's, it might be new to the rest of us, right? <laughs> but this has always existed. And you, and you do these really interesting things here where you play with um, not just time periods, but also pronouns in the process, which I thought was fascinating and really cool because it kind of made this, made me mentally challenge like kind of my patriarchal assumptions that like, I don't even think I carry is somebody, you know, in my mind, I'm like, no, I write about women's issues all day. Like I don't have patriarchy, you know, but it's like really, it was really interesting for me. So thank you for that, that challenge. But, you know, I want to double back to the trauma thing because, you know, obviously this is a narrative that is largely centered on a plantation, which is tellingly dubbed the empty. And we are accordingly subject to a lot of trauma that occurs in that setting. Um, Although I, you know, I would also argue that you illustrate a lot of internal liberation here as well. It's always really refreshing to see that none of these characters are flattened. None of them, you know, are one dimensional in their enslavement. But you noted that you were concerned about that pushback. So what do you say to people who were like, no more Black trauma narrative? You know, know, as an artist, um, I'm thinking of something Toni Morrison once said. She said, fiction is not fact, but it is the truth. And she thinks that her job as a fiction writer is to document how it was how it ought to be, she will leave to the sociologists. So if I, as as a fiction writer, am documenting how it was, I can't pretend that it was roses and daffodils. (laughs) 
for a Black person in this country we call the United States, much of what we've experienced has been trauma. Mm -hmm. To this day, we experience trauma, even if at the same time we've had our joys and our hopes and our dreams realized, it's under the banner of trauma because this country, how it defines itself is through its anti-Blackness. That is how America became America. We are going to slaughter the Native population, and we are going to enslave the Black population. And that is how we create the wealth of this country. That is when, when an immigrant comes to America, particularly a European immigrant, but not always, how they become white is by becoming anti-Black. So the, the Italian, the Irish, the Jew, the Asian, whomever it is, gets inducted into whiteness or white adjacency through their hatred of Black people. That is how it occurs. So the narrative here is one of a traumatic experience that I, you, you, as, as a Black person, we are the thing that people are defining their humanity against. Oof. Wow. And they don't, sometimes they don't even realize it. They, they don't understand that that's the process they're going through. They just express racism, but they don't understand that they're defining themselves through this act. So to the people who say, you know, we were more than just slaves. I say the same thing. We were more than just slaves. We were not slaves. We were enslaved. Slavery is the sin of the enslaver. A slave is a non-person. They didn't enslave non-people. They enslaved people. Mm -hmm. So I say, if there were 2 million slaves or 2 million enslaved people, there are 2 million stories to tell. And I, I think about Jewish people, Jews, when they talk about the Holocaust, it's never forget. We have to tell this story because if we don't tell this story, you'll have these people out here saying there was no such thing as the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That mm -hmm. is how I feel about antebellum slavery. We have, it hurts, gosh, it hurts. But we have to remember because our ancestors endured it so that we could be here today. And also because they're still trying to bury it today, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're still trying to act like it didn't happen. <laughs> or act like it was something that was benevolent. Right. Luckily, right. we enslaved you so that we could civilize you and introduce you to Jesus. <laughs> that's that. That's their that's their narrative now. So so I'm compelled to tell the truth, and and I will probably never write another story about this time period. But I had to get this out of my spirit and tell it the way I understood it should have been told. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You know, you put 
obviously, you know, I have to know, you're a New York City native. I, I, I read your bio, you're from New York City. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a former New Yorker, Danielle's in New York. Um, but, you know, I, I was kind of taken by how much research you must have put into this novel. So this is a craft question because you have us on both a fictional plantation and a fictional African kingdom, both of which are written, inflected with some dialect and very specific cultural references. So what was the process of research like on this? And, and how long did that even take? Like you start, it started with some shackles on the street. Like how, how long did you, how, how deep did you dig into this? As deeply as I possibly could. Um, so after the shackles, the first act that I did, and you asking this question made me remember this. The first act that I did was search my own family tree to find out because my roots are Southern. Mm-hmm. And so I said, what was it like for them? So I, I dug out all of these old family photos and I spoke to the elders in my family to learn about, for example, my great, great grandfather, Lawrence, who was, um, for lack of a better term, a witch doctor, medicine man in South Carolina. He was the person who everyone in the town went to for healing, went to when they were cursed and they wanted the curse removed, you know, that kind of stuff. So I learned about my great-great-grandfather, Lawrence, and I learned about my great-aunt Annie, who was Lawrence's daughter. When I was a kid and I would visit South Carolina on summer vacations, I would go to my great-aunt Annie's house. And she had this, what looked kind of like a shack. And I didn't know the history and all of that stuff. I was a kid at the time, but I found out as an adult that that shack was built she built that with her own hands with her husband on a piece of the land that was given to her mother by her enslaver. They parceled out a piece of, of the plantation to give to her. So as a kid, I was playing on a plantation and never knew it. So all of these things began to sort of inform my idea of what it must have been like to live during that period, the dialect, the, the, the way the people held themselves, how they survived it, what they endured. In addition to all of the academic research I was doing. So I was reading all of the slave narratives. I was reading as much about that time period as I possibly could, including Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, in which he gives his opinion on the subhumanness of Black people. Um, he's debating whether or not Phyllis Wheatley is an actual person or if she's just a monkey imitating human beings. I mean, this is Thomas Jefferson, who, by the way, is raping Sally Hemings all while he's saying all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I use that word very intentionally because people present it as though it was a love affair between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. An enslaved person cannot have a love affair with the person who owns them. <laughs> it is rape. Let's call it what it is. And he was a serial rapist. But also where I was, where I was finding hope and, and liberation was in oral histories particularly of continental Africans. So Esther Arma, who is a brilliant artist, activist Mm -hmm. from Ghana, she talked about how her grandparents and great-grandparents, if you had asked them, for example, what a homosexual was, they would say, oh, we don't know what this is. We don't have that. And as a Westerner, we would have walked away from that conversation thinking there were no homosexuals in Ghana. She said, had you explained to them what you meant by homosexual, they would have said, oh, you mean love. Because for them, for her culture, there was no need to separate queerness out from heterosexuality or 
transgenderness, from cisgenderness. It was all a part of the landscape. It was all love. It was all sex. So pre-colonial Africans had a very expansive and quite contemporary, modern and advanced ideas about um, gender, gender identity and sexuality. And once I was exposed to that, it gave me the space to, to imagine the Kasongo people, which is a fictional tribe I talk about, as well as Samuel and Isaiah in Antebellum, Mississippi. So, you know, Robert, I'm going to double back to your social media presence for a minute, you know, which had well over 100,000 followers even before the prophets. As someone previously known from my blog, The Black Snob, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm well aware of how that kind of social engagement can really bolster a writing career. But obviously not everyone is masterful at that. Do you feel your online engagement helped you develop your writing style as well as potentially providing a built-in audience for your first novel? Yes. Um, my engagement on Son of Baldwin taught me so much about how limited my education here in America was, despite having two degrees. Um, Americans tend to think, we, we tend to think that the way we think about the world is the way the whole world thinks about the world. We don't realize we are this much of the consciousness and the education that people around the world have. So what Son of Baldwin did was shatter that sense of entitlement that, that sort of sense of privilege. Because I can now talk to a Black British gay man or a Black lesbian in Brazil or a Black transgender woman in Zimbabwe, and they can all tell me what the constructions of gender, gender identity, and sexuality look like in their individual places. And no, it's not like how you think about it there in the States where with your relentless binaries and your relentless boxes and your relentless need to categorize everybody and put everybody on a hierarchy. We don't think of it like that. And so that helped me to sort of open up my mind and say, okay, these ideas need to sort of breathe. I can't trap myself in the American box when I'm writing this book. What I can do is show what the American box is and show how other people approached it in their own constructions of these ideas and how the American idea is not inherent to nature. It is forcefully, colonizingly pushed into our sense of self. So Son of Baldwin was very valuable in that way. And in another way, people have been so supportive of the book, largely because these are people who believe in the work of Son of Baldwin, because it's not just my work. This is, this is a community. We, we're having conversations. I'm not like a leader. I may be a facilitator, like I provide the platform, but I'm not the one who's like, I'm the MLK of this. Everybody follow mm. me. <laughs> I'm more like Ella Baker. We all in this together. Yeah, this, this I is love all it. of us. I love it. Well, I've been part of that community for years. So thank you for that. I don't always chime in, but I'm always reading. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, speaking of conversations, I think it's worth noting, um, It'll be a few weeks <laughs> once once we hear this, but we're having this conversation in the wake of a um, fairly major and controversial moment that also played on social media that dovetails with a major theme of the prophets, which is, you know, the whole dust up over little Nas X and Montero, call me by your name, you know, the subtitle. And it's a video and, a, and that it's really about the video, I think, that uses Christian themes to make a really pointed critique about how that community treats its LGBTQ children 
and you do the same in the profits. Is there any way, I know you had thoughts about this on social media, but is there any way that you hope that both your works and others in the space that are being created, because obviously those aren't the only ones, could potentially move this very necessary conversation forward? Shout out to Lil Nas X for doing something so (laughs) daring and so controversial because of the imagery that it uses. But like Tasha Mack said on social media, y'all mad at Lil Nas X, but still stepping in the name of love. Yeah. To which I say, we hate fake demons, but love real ones. Yes. Because y'all still out here protesting in behalf of R. Kelly, talking about free R. Kelly. What? Okay, don't get me started. But um, I'm hoping that this conversation begins to get the African-American community, particularly Black Christians, to understand that homophobia is a European construction. You were taught to be homophobic through Christianity as it was presented to you through the whip and through rape of the colonizer. It is not something that is inherent to your African self because your African self had wildly different ideas about queerness and transgenderness and, and, and so on and so forth, about matriarchy versus patriarchy and so on and so forth. When you participate in anti-LGBTQIA plus bigotry, you are promoting white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Period. The end. And I'm hoping that whether you're Hotep, whether you're Christian, whether you're a Muslim or whatever, that you begin to see these things as the constructions that they are. And I'm hoping whether it's Little Nas X, whether it's The Prophet's or, or, or Patsy, um, Nicole Dennis Ben's book, doing the work to make us understand that this is the case. I hope, I hope we understand that this is the case. Unless, you know, we're willing to admit, well, we want to be white supremacist capitalist patriarchs. Because then if you say that, then I'll be like, oh, okay. So then I, then I understand. But don't pretend you want to be pro-black, mm-hmm. but anti-LGBTQIA+, because you can't be both at the same time. There you go. Excellent point. Yeah. Excellent point. Amen to everything. Like, that was so Absolutely. <laughs> so good. Robert, thank you so much for joining me and Maisha on It's Lit to talk about your book, The Prophets. Like, everyone such needs to read book. it. It's such a great everyone book. Everyone needs to read it. Wait, it's over? I'm, I'm like Janet Jackson right now. That's the end? <laughs> <laughs> and we do love a shout out to Janet Jackson. So there you go. Yes. <laughs> But thank you so much for joining us on It's Lit. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a joy. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi. 
The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Special thanks to Sarah Chishti. If you like the show and you want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you reading these days? You know, I am backtracking a bit to um, some writers that we revisited not too long ago. I think it was in February. I am looking at 400 Souls again, (laughs) because this is not a book that I was able to read from cover to cover when we uh, spoke with Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha Blaine back in February. But, you know, it is a book worth revisiting. It is basically all these narratives of 400 years and and in a weird way falls very much in line with our discussion today of the prophets. So yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm astounded by the amount of research and thought and information put into this book. Just this, this amassing of talent. What are you reading? You know, I, because I can't write one book at a time, like apparently I'm writing two. (laughs) So one is a memoir about mental health. And so I'm reading right now An Unquiet Mind, a memoir of moods and madness by Kay Redfield Jameson, which is about living with mental illness. So just getting into it. So really excited uh, to kind of explore this topic and see how other people have broached it. It's important, I think, for more authors uh, to talk about their experiences with mental illness and to help like promote just this understanding that just because you're mentally ill doesn't make you less than or like it's not like you're not less of a person you're not it's this is about humanizing people with mental illness and getting to see us as our full in our full spectrum of humanity and to be ourselves as opposed to being something to be afraid of well you know i love your writing on on mental health that i think you've been so transparent about your own journey and I think very affirming to any of us who, <laughs> and I don't, I don't actually know anybody who doesn't, whether they discuss it or not, or have been diagnosed with it or not. I'm not sure I know anybody who doesn't have mental health issues, to be honest. It's pretty common. <laughs> it's pretty common. It's pretty common. And I think you're right. The more that we destigmatize it and, and just kind of centralize it as like, just normalize talking about mental health, like, like we would talk about anything else. So, yes, I am excited to see what you write on the subject because I always love your work on that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. And thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week. In the meantime, keep it lit.